You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead, tell someone the title of my sermon this morning The Prayers. The Prayers. Well, before we get started, last week our church uh, had uh, a member's vote uh, on and voting in some new members into our congregation, and it is, it is my pleasure to announce that that vote was successful, and we welcome the Ravellos and the Briones to the, to the fellowship of uh, Plus Life Church, officially as members, praise God. They have been a blessing to us already uh, for this past year and, and whatnot, and, and uh, we look forward to continue to serve with them and what God's going to go, go, going to do through these families in our midst. We praise God for that. This morning, we come to the final sermon of our vision casting series called Counter Culture Church. It's been a series where we have been looking at the early church in the book of Acts to see what made them distinct, what set them apart from the rest of the culture, what brought these people, outsiders, unbelievers, to them and, and caused people to be, uh, to be in awe and, and, and even come to the faith and believe and why God increased their numbers on, even on a daily basis, as we read from the book of Acts. And we noticed for these past few weeks that it was because they were devoted to four things, Four, uh, four practices of the faith in Acts chapter, four, uh, Acts chapter 2, rather, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The apostles' teachings, as we looked at in the first part of our, our, our series, is really a devotion to the gospel, to, uh, the, to the fullness of the gospel and the call to repentance, which, to repentance, which resulted in holiness. They were teaching the very things that they learned from Jesus Christ. And for us in, in, in 2024 and the modern church, the legacy of the apostles' teaching is really the New Testament. And for us to be, to be devoted to, similarly, the apostles' teachings, it means that we need to be devoted to the reading and studying of God's Word if we want to be countercultural. Secondly, they were devoted to the fellowship, and we understood that it's, fellowship does not simply mean socialization, as oftentimes we, we think of it. Fellowship in the original Greek, once again, is koinonia. It is the gathering of believers for the specific purpose of serving one another, edifying one another, participating together in the local body and each other's lives. It's in, in a society where, where, again, everything is very much personal, individual, where it's a personal faith, it's a personal religion, fellowship, sincere community, where we are edifying and seeking to edify one another is very much countercultural. Then we also looked at last week the idea of the breaking of bread. And this wasn't simply just sharing a meal, but really commemorating the Lord's table, participating in communion whenever we gather, whenever we break bread. It's ensuring that, it's ensuring that others can participate at the Lord's table as well. And, and in a weekly reminder that our allegiance is to Christ that we have identified with the sacrifice of Christ, that he has truly given us his righteousness and we have been forgiven of all sin. It is a commitment, it's a, it was a weekly reminder of our commitment to the local body, to the body of Christ. Now, this week, we are looking at 
the prayers, the prayers. At, at first glance, with the phrasing that it presents us with this, um, the prayers may seemingly imply that, and some traditions would argue, the disciples had specific set of prayers that they prayed. But that is not the case historically, right? Any, any notion that there was uh, some set of prayers or uh, specific prayers that they prayed, aside from the Lord's Prayer, wasn't around until later centuries, but the early church, I think when it's, what is described here in regards to the prayers was simply a pattern of prayer, a lifestyle of prayer. All throughout the book of Acts, the history of the early church, prayer was an integral part to being the community of believers, to the life and growth of the church. Act, the book of Acts begins with the disciples after the ascension of Christ, meeting in an upper room and simply praying together, waiting for the Holy Spirit. When the, whenever the disciples were in prison, the, the, the remaining disciples did not riot, they did not plead to the officials, they instead prayed, prayed for each other, prayed for those who were in prison. When they were sending out missionaries and other apostles to go out in the varying countrysides, they prayed for them. As mentioned in Acts chapter 2, they came together on a daily basis to pray. They were devoted to prayer. Again, that word devotion simply meaning they persisted in prayer. The early church had a culture of prayer that set them apart from any Jewish or Hellenistic society. And I think a good question to ask in the midst of all that is, what about their prayer, what about their lifestyle of prayer, their culture of prayer, set them apart from the rest of of the world. Because really, prayer is not a new thing. Every culture, every religion, every faith system has some sort of communi com communion with their God, some sort of prayer to their false God. And even in Jewish liturgy, in Jewish orthodoxy, which the disciples were raised in, they were called to pray three times a day, in the morning, during midday, and right before they went to bed. So prayer was nothing new. What was it about their prayers, their lifestyle of prayers, their pattern of prayer that brought people to awe? Well, I think to understand what made the early church distinct and set apart in their prayers, we need to first recognize the source of their pattern of prayer, where they, where they learned how to pray. And with everything that we have talked about these past few weeks and everything that the disciples taught and practiced in the early church, you have to understand that they were simply imitating the ministry of Jesus Christ. They were simply imitating, following what Jesus taught them. When it came to their teaching, again, they were just teaching what Jesus taught them. When they were fellowshipping, they were simply regarding each other the same way that Christ regarded them. The way that they were serving each other, was they were simply imitating how Christ served them. Remember the story of Jesus washing their feet? Even the breaking of bread, they're just following the ordinance that Christ instituted. So naturally, the way that they prayed is simply how Christ taught them how to pray. And that's what we see in our passage today. As we see from the Gospels, Jesus' earthly ministry was saturated with prayer. At his baptism, it says that he was praying even there. Whenever he would do some great miracle before and after, he would be praying. Before the crucifixion, Christ was praying in the garden. Even at the cross, Jesus was praying. His entire ministry was saturated with prayer. And, and what we see in the gospel is one of the uh, only requests, the only lessons that the disciples request of Christ is this lesson on how to pray. 
As disciples of Christ, as, as these disciples of Christ, these, the, the apostles, the, the early church simply was practicing, again, what they learned from Christ, what Christ demonstrated to them, a lifestyle and an attitude towards prayer. This is what made them countercultural, what drew unbelievers, what drew the lost to the early church, to the apostles. It's what distinguished them from the other world religions. They weren't just habitually praying, but their attitude towards prayer was distinct because they were practicing similarly how Jesus prayed. And, and if we want to be a, a church that is countercultural, a church that is growing, a church that, that unbelievers will look into and see something distinct, something different about, we need to practice the same pattern or prayer that our Savior practiced and taught to his disciples. Specifically, how, how, how we ought to approach prayer and view with attitude and our devotion to it. See, at the, the reality is, currently, there is an epidemic in the church. And that epidemic in modern-day churches is a lack of prayer. A lack of prayer. I brought some graphs and statistics again because I know that was a big deal for uh, last a couple of weeks ago and uh, people enjoyed that. But here's some more statistics. And uh, this is from pewresearch.org and they just gets, gather statistics from various church organizations, not even church organizations, but in general other organizations. This is a sample size of 25,000 of Christians, believers. And the question was asked, you know, how frequently did believers pray? Um, and this was the results. Can we go to that first slide? The frequency of prayers, uh, not by age. Let's go to, the, to the, the one before that. There we go. The results, again, is a sample size for 25,000 Christians, believers, or so-called Christians. And the question was how often people prayed. And only 68% of Christians prayed on a daily basis. Now, you might be thinking that's, that's pretty high, right? That's more than 50%. But in a faith where prayer is meant to be a distinctive, that should be very much alarming to us. And of course, I mean, we see it, right, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, seldom, never. Only 68% of all Christians or people who identify as Christians say they pray on a, on, on, a, on a daily basis. Now, if we break that down even further, let's go to that age one again, right? Between 18 to, in that 68%, uh, 18 to 29, right, the ages between 18 to 29, only 15% pray on a daily basis. That's some of our congregation's age group here, right? I, I'm in the second group here, the 33%, right? It's a higher number. Uh, so praise God for that, the 30, between 30 to 49. But it's interesting how even as, as, as you get later in age, the percentage even drops praying on a daily basis. Now, I think even more alarming, let's go to the last slide here. Only 40% of men pray on a daily basis. Meanwhile, of course, women, you know, praise God, 60% pray on a daily basis. Now, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? It tells us that, it tells us that Christians 
can go days without praying. It tells us that Christians can go days without communing with God, which is abhorrent. Imagine if you're, if you're a spouse today or if you have a, a relationship today. Imagine going on days without speaking to your spouse, without speaking to your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parent, but expecting that your fellowship, your connectedness to that person would stay the same. Yet somehow we still treat our relationship with God with that same indifference. It also tells us, what these graphs tell us is that, that Christian men are slacking in prayer. The men who are called to be the priests of their household are slacking in prayer. You're not praying enough. Men, if you are not praying, if you are not leading your home in prayer, you are failing in your call to be the man of your house. It also tells us that Christians don't think it necessary to pray. A lack of prayer is an epidemic in the modern church. It's like if you've ever seen those memes where like, this is how we started, right? And this is where we are. How we started is Acts chapter 1 verse 14. They were devoted, they devoted themselves to prayer together with the women. And this is where we are now. Christians don't pray on a daily basis. There's divisions among age group on, on how frequent we pray. Men don't pray. That's where we are today. I'm not saying necessarily our church. I hope not our church. But on a global scale, this is where the church is. It's, it should be heartbreaking to us, I think. I think Christians have taken prayer for granted. You have to understand how crazy that sounds. Before Christ came, before the cross happened, believers, followers of God were, were so apprehensive at the thought of even coming close to God, even, even entering into, into his presence at the fear of their sin being found and them being judged and consumed by God's holiness. Only the priest could approach God. But with the advent of Christ, his death on the cross, the veil has been torn. We have been given full access, a privilege to the Holy of Holies. Yet we still don't come. The psalmists deeply expressed throughout their writings their, their desire, their longing, as we even read this morning, to be in the presence of God, to be near to God. And here we are in the New Testament in the church, given the confidence, permission to approach the throne of grace because of Christ's righteousness, and we still don't come, we still don't pray. To put it bluntly, and I say this very lovingly, if you call yourself a Christian but do not pray on a daily basis, you should be ashamed. You call yourself a Christian, but do not pray. Commune with God on a daily basis. You should be ashamed. And I, and I say that imperfectly feeling the weight of that same conviction. I can testify that even this past week, there have been days where, where my prayers have been simply praying for the food or praying at night with the kids. But that specific 
time of communion, dwelling in God's presence, to pour out my grievances, to plead for strength, to praise Him for the unmerited blessings that He's poured out on my life and family. Simply be in His presence. Listen, I too have failed. I think all of us can develop better patterns, better attitudes towards prayer. So the hope for us this morning as we come to this final sermon in our series is to learn from the Savior once again proper perspectives, proper attitudes towards prayer. Not so much how to pray. I think we've looked at that before and we'll touch on that a bit. But really, what our attitude should be when we approach the throne of grace. Even answering why we should approach in the first place. We, the hope is that we would come to a realization that, listen, when we pray, we're not doing God a favor. But it is a privilege to, to be welcomed into the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God, and to receive help. My hope is that we would, we would come to, to desire that daily communion, that daily fellowship, that daily koinonia with our Savior, with our God through our prayers. Because if we don't pray, if we are people who lacks prayer, we are, really we are like a, a withering plant lacking sunlight, a barren waste lacking the waters of life. And the hope for us, church, is that we would be committed and devoted to prayer, just like the early church, just like how Christ intended for his church to be, to have a pattern, a lifestyle of prayer that the Savior himself set the bar for, set the standard for, that the Savior died for. My hope is that, yes, we would be like the early church and that we would be distinct from the rest of the world because we are a praying people, a praying church. So let's break down our passage here in Luke chapter 11. Again, this is the Savior's lesson to his disciples on how to pray. Just some context here. There is a parallel passage of this, of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. The difference being in Luke chapter 11, it's, very, it's specifically Jesus speaking to his disciples. Matthew 6 is during the Sermon of the Mount and Jesus speaking to a mass crowd. And that's why there's some distinction there. And even a deeper lesson in Matthew, or rather Luke chapter 11 with his disciples. Now, Luke chapter 11, our passage, is broken down into three parts. Verse, four to, uh, verse 1 to 4 is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. Pray like this. Verse 5 to 10, Jesus gives a parable to give an example of how one's attitude ought to be when we're approaching prayer. And that's the parable of the persistent friend we'll look at. And then verse 11 to verse 13, some say it's another parable, but it's simply Christ relating God to a, a, a father who answers the needs of his children and, uh, and how we ought to perceive our relationship with God in prayer. We'll break down the first, well, we'll actually jump down to verse 5 first and, and, and take, uh, unpack the parable and we'll come back to the Lord's prayer after in the end. But look at verse 5 with me again. It says, and he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. 
And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. and My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, the word there is persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. What is the first attitude that we ought to have while we are praying? We ought to pray with persistence. Pray with persistence. The example or the attitude, the pattern of prayer that we get from Jesus in this first parable is that of this persistent friend. A friend that was seeking aid from a reluctant friend, a reluctant neighbor. And of course, what's inferred in this parable is that, and which we sort of plainly see in the next section, is the comparison between the response of this evil, depraved human being, this friend who is reluctant to give help to this, to this neighbor, to this friend, and, and, and contrasting that to the good God and, and, and the holy God in the same context. The idea is if we evil humans would eventually yield to the plead and the persistent request of a friend, even at our own inconvenience, how much more a God who is good, who is ready, who is eager to answer our prayers and hear our requests. And of course, this is all the more reinforced in verse 9 to 10. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus paints a certainty and assurance to our prayers being answered, an assurance that the pra- our prayers will be heard. And I think many times when you hear a sermon on this topic, they hyper-focus on verse 9 to 10 and have taken it to mean that we can request of God anything that we want and He will give it and we will receive it. But I think we miss the point of this passage, of this parable. The focus of this passage is the attitude of the persistent friend, the impudent friend. This word here in the original Greek is anidaya. Anidaya means shameless persistence, an embarrassed boldness, an unembarrassed boldness. It's the only time this word comes up in the New Testament. It describes the audacity, the confidence that believers ought to have when we come to God in prayer. Even if it means coming to God in prayer and asking for the same thing time and time again, over and over again. Even if it comes to, uh, when it comes to repeated prayers, persisting in prayers. It's in this context that we get this call to ask, to seek, and knock. It's the persistent asking that receives. It is a persistent seeking that finds. It is a persistent knocking that the door is open to, that answer that our that prayers are answered. And, and and why I believe this is important and why Jesus is talking about this to his disciples is because listen, as human beings, we are so quick to quit praying when we don't get what we want. We are so quick to take things into our own hands when we don't get the answer that we want. We are so quick to move on with our daily life when we don't feel like praying anymore. The call is to persist in prayer. 
We are more likely to, as human beings, we are more likely to desist in prayer than to persist in it. And the reason for that is because oftentimes we lack faith. We lack a persistence in prayer because we lack faith. It demonstrates that, that we don't have faith in the one that we are praying to. We lack trust in, in God to, to hear us, to care for us, to, to be able to answer our prayers. At times, I think we lack faith in God's plan, in God's timing, in God's provision. That's often why we stop praying. We treat prayer like everything else in our lives. For example, if you have something in your home that doesn't work, that doesn't benefit you, that lacks results, that you don't think has a, doesn't have a point or think that you can do better without, you throw it out, right? You get rid of it. There's no use for it. Unfortunately, I believe that's what happens with prayer. As we saw in the statistics, right, almost 40% of Christians don't have a high view of prayer. Don't pray on a daily basis because they don't think it's worth doing. Listen, the disciples were devoted to prayer. It's, it's so interesting that the first thing that they do in the book of Acts after Christ ascends is stay in the upper room and pray. Pray and pray and pray. I think this, the, the reason for that is because they knew what was at stake if they didn't pray. They had firsthand experience of what happens if the people of God do not pray. Can anyone think of an incident before the book of Acts where the disciples should have been praying but didn't and it turned out bad for them? Any scenario? Matthew chapter 26, verse 40 to 41. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. It says, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? I love that. So like, what are you doing? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. But what happened? Even after that rebuke, Jesus left. The, the, the disciples went back to sleep. They didn't pray. And as a result, when the soldiers came, they scattered. You have to understand, prayer is not simply asking God for material things or an escape from your problems to fix whatever trial that you're in. More importantly, prayer is communing with our Creator so that we are not communing with our flesh. It's basking in the joy of His presence so that we would not find joy elsewhere in the world. Prayer is a reminder of who our allegiance belongs to, where we find our strength, where we find our hope, our peace, where we find grace, forgiveness. It's where we find reinvigoration for the fight. Listen, don't expect to win the battles of the flesh. You are not praying. Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh and blood. It's, it's prayer. The power to destroy strongholds. 
If you are struggling in sin and temptation, if you are struggling to resist the lies of the enemy, you're not persisting in prayer enough. You're not spending enough time in the presence of your Creator so that you understand what your, who your, what your identity is in Him. When we persist in prayer, we can resist in the flesh. And really, it's the same thing in everything else. If you're unable to make decisions in your life, if you are fearful and anxious of tomorrow, if you're prone to relying on your own strength and failing, if you're prone to bad mentalities and bad perspectives, persist in prayer. Keep coming to God. Keep coming to God. Keep coming to God. For a renewed heart, for a changed will, for a renewed mind, for your resolve to stand firm. Keep coming to God. Be persistent in it. And I get it. Sometimes we don't feel like pray, praying. We are too tired. We are too busy. We are too discouraged. But listen, it is when we don't feel like praying that we need to pray the most. That we need to dwell in God's presence the most. That we need to persist, endure longer in prayer the most. Again, persistence demonstrates our determination to cling to God in this world and have faith in His power and His will. We need to pray more. We need to pray more. Maybe some application here, we talk about persisting in, in prayer. Persistence doesn't necessarily look like repetitious prayer where you're praying to God every, every moment of the day and it's about a specific topic. Maybe something you could do, something practical, is schedule a specific topic to pray for during the week. For example, you know, on Mondays, you're going to pray for the church. On Tuesdays, you're going to pray for your family. On, on Wednesdays, you're going to pray for your, your brother. Persistence is demonstrated by constantly bringing the same issues and same topics to God. It doesn't have to be on the same day. You can spread it out throughout the week. If you are regularly overcome by temptation, I can assure you that you're not praying enough. Fill more of your time with prayer. Get into the habit of starting the day and ending the day in prayer. Because understand, as we understand prayer to be, it's simply communion, a conversation with God, spending time in His presence. Imagine how your life would be, your perspective change, your, your, your heart change, if you started the day in the presence of God and ended the day in the presence of God. On a daily basis, again. And again, the, the, the push here is to be praying Daily. There's no quarter in that. There's, there's, there's no wiggle room in that. Believers ought to be praying every day. Pray with persistence. Secondly, we get from our passage that we need to pray with dependence. Pray with dependence. Look at verse 11 with me. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
The second example and second sort of pattern that we get from Christ is this comparison between the wicked or earthly father demonstrating care to their children to, and comparing that with the good heavenly father who provides good to his children, to us. Now, two important truths from this, from this passage that we just read, this section that we just read, that we just read in how we ought to approach God in prayer. First and foremost, that God is our Father, and that God is a good Father. God is our Father. It means that He's personal. He's not distant. He's not impersonal. He's not a stranger. The way that Christ taught His disciples how to pray was to address God as their Father. And understand, this was very much revolutionary in the Jewish context to these Jewish disciples who didn't address God as a father because familiarity is contempt. And really, mind you, it still is. We must still address God with reverence and honor that He alone deserves. So so again, this idea of of us calling God our Father was, was, was almost taboo to the to the Jewish disciples who couldn't even mention the real name of God, Yahweh, or even write it down on paper. But yet Jesus is teaching them to call God their Father. The idea here is that when we address God as our Heavenly Father, we are recognizing this familial relationship that we have, this connection that we have with Him, a recognition of our position before a holy God. See, in prayer, we're not approaching a wrathful judge that we ought to fear and who is ready to punish us. Or a a common friend that we should be so relaxed with. Or an enemy that we would be so resistant and hold information from. We approach our Heavenly Father who has all the love, all the grace, all the mercy, all the forgiveness, all the care that any earthly father has, but even more. At the same time, who is deserving of more honor and respect than any honor and respect that we would give our earthly fathers? God is our father. In addition to that, God is a good father. It means that God will never give us anything that isn't good. You can take that to the bank. God will never give us anything that isn't good for us. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And we've talked about this before. We explained this. It's kind of it's kind of redundant that James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift. Well, wouldn't we want the perfect gift, right? What James is talking about here in the original Greek, the word good is anything that is inherently good. Kids are inherently good. Family and relationships are inherently good. The word for perfect in the original Greek is anything that is being made to be good. Anything that isn't inherently good, but God is turning for good, using for good. That's every trial, that's every hardship, that's all the bad things that we face in this world that our Heavenly Father is working out for our good, for those who love Him and are, and are called according to His purposes. God is our Father, and God is our good Father. 
the one that only gives good to his own. Even if we don't think it's good at the moment. These two realities are important when it comes to prayer because it should fuel our dependence on him. Our trust and reliance on his will and his purposes and plans for us. We have a relational God who only wants to give us good. That ought to give us fire to pray all the more, to approach him all the more. Listen, right, as parents, parents, you know this. The reason why, why the kids love to run to us and ask for snacks, well, at least my kids always come to me for snacks for some reason, because they know that I'm going to give them the best. All the Ritz crackers and juice boxes. Don't go to your mom. She just gives you vegetables. Like, ugh, who wants that? It's also why kids run to their parents when they are hurt or sad or want something. Because there is a full, for kids, there is a full dependence on their parents, full reliant, complete trust in them to fix whatever is going on, make things better. Similarly, Jesus says that we ought to approach God like with the faith of children, the childlike faith, trusting and depending on the one we are praying to, the one who, as the Old Testament says, inclines his ear to us, inclines his ear towards us, the one who hears us, who knows us even more than we know ourselves. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That confidence that we are called to have in approaching God is from the reality that, that Christ knows us. That God knows what we are going through. That he can sympathize with us. And we can receive grace and help in our times of need. And notice, by the way, from our passage, what God's best provision in our times of need is. It's not more money. It's not a stress-free life. It's not a bigger house or whatever problem or a solution to whatever problems that we might have. It says in our main passage, verse 13, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God's best provision for us in our times of need, in our times of trial and trouble, is Himself, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comforts us, who empowers us, who helps us endure, who renews our minds, who changes our heart. It's the Holy Spirit. That's the best that God offers us to his children. Just by way of application here, how can we be more dependent in our, in our prayer, in our prayer life? Very simple. All right? Go to God first. Go to God first. You come across a trouble in your life, a trial in your life, before anything else, before consulting with anything else, before consulting with, with the internet or your friend or, or whatever else, go to God first. Depend on Him first. 
before you try to figure things out on your own, go to him first. Depend on him. Rely on him. Approach him with a childlike faith. Approach your heavenly father with full trust and dependence. You must pray with dependence. Lastly, how we should pray, attitude that we ought to have, how we should approach, or the kind of pattern that we ought to have in praying. Lastly, we need to pray together. Pray together. As I was doing my study in our passage this past week, something I, I, I found that for some reason has always flew by my head or I never noticed before, but really fits the theme of everything that we've been talking about in this vision casting series and really the spirit that has been cultivating in our church, I feel, for these past few weeks of this unity and this, this oneness, togetherness. If you look at our passage and how Jesus teaches them how to pray, it says in verse 2, and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You ever notice how the Lord's prayer isn't said in the first person singular? It's not, give me my daily bread. And forgive me my sins. And lead me not into temptation. It's said in the plural. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. As we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. It's in the plural. What's the implication here? We are to pray together. The pattern, the practice, the attitude that Jesus was giving to his disciples is that, listen, you need to pray together. Pray together. Seek the face of God together. Seek the will and plans of God together. Seek the strength of God together. Seek the purposes and the guidance and the wisdom of God together. Seek the provision of God together. Seek the forgiveness of God together. As we, saw, as we see in the book of Acts, the early church, they gathered together. They had everything in common. They were, the early church was devoted to prayer, praying together. Again, in, in, a, in a society that it's all personal religion, your personal relationship, your holiness, when you come to God, this was countercultural. A group of people praying for the holiness of each other. A group of people praying together was uncommon. Yet the people of God needs to be a praying people. A people who intercede on behalf of each other. On behalf of the world. The people who bring each other to the throne of grace in times of need. Especially the brothers and sisters who are weaker in the faith. Who are struggling. Need to be a people who willfully and joyfully, eagerly pray for one another. Because we enjoy being in the presence of God and bringing our concerns to God. We need to be a people who, who care enough for each other that we pray together. There's just something uniting, something uniting in prayer. Whenever we say amen, that, that means we are agreeing together for the things that have been prayed for. 
The same reason why we pray in Jesus' name. When we pray in Jesus' name, is we are declaring that what we have prayed for is on behalf of Christ himself, is in line with the will of Christ. There's a prayer unites people. It ought to. Remember, last week we talked about how one of the greatest sins that the people of God can enact on one another is that of indifference, the lack of care, the lack of love. And the most loving thing, the most powerful thing that you could do for a brother or sister is to pray for them. Pray for them. Intercede on their behalf. Of course, we know in, in the book of James that faith without works is dead, and it doesn't mean that we just pray for them and don't try to help them physically. Of course, that's all in there, but it has to start with prayer. We need to be a church who believes in the power of prayer, in the power of God through prayer, that God in his sovereignty uses our prayers by the, by, by, as, as a means to enact his will and purposes in each other's lives. That's why we must count it a privilege to pray for one another because to, to the reality that God is using our prayers for eternal impacts, divine purposes in your brother, in your sister's life. It's a privilege to be a part of that work. Imagine what kind of church we will be if we were people who come together, united in prayer for all the relationships that will be restored, for all the, the breakthroughs in, 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 in the battles against sin and temptation, for all the healing for those who are sick, for all the lives that will be changed by the gospel. We need to pray together. By application of that, we're, we're starting something as a church. Our, our leadership team has thought of a, a plan where we can cultivate more prayer in our community. And we're going to start a prayer journal as a church. Prayer journal. We already started, with, if you recall, last month we had a, a prayer service and we took some prayer requests there. And we put all of that on a spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet's going to be available for everyone to see all the prayer requests, and people, you can add prayers there as well. Uh, any requests that you have, we'll give you all the information for that journal. But it's also a place that we can record the answered prayers. We, re we can record the, the praises of God, the things that God has blessed, and how he's answered in our church, the prayers that he's answered in our church. So that as a community, we can come together to pray, but also to rejoice and celebrate the ways that God has moved powerfully in the lives of each and every one of us. We must pray with persistence. We must pray with dependence, and we must pray together. So as we close here, to the, to the lost, if you're listening to the sermon and my voice, and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ. I want you, first and foremost, to know that you are a sinner and in rebellion towards God. But take heart, because God has made a way so that you can come to him and receive forgiveness for your sins and have a right relationship with him. And that way is through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would put your faith in him today.
that you would depend on him, that you would, that you would trust in him. For the found, for believers. Listen, if you are here this morning and you have been discouraged in your prayer life, maybe you feel like God hasn't been hearing you or answering your prayers. Maybe you feel like, like, what's the point of praying? Should I even pray? You've been feeling discouraged in your prayer life. You've been wondering if God has been hearing you at all. You have to understand, as Spurgeon put it, the streaming wounds of Jesus are the sure guarantee that our prayers are answered. The blood of Christ on the cross is our guaranteed that the veil has been torn and that we can approach a holy God knowing that we are received and that we can receive grace and mercies in our times of need. This is our confidence for us who are found in Christ. That we can approach God and even call him Father and know that he hears us, he cares for us, and that even if his answer is not the answer that we are looking for, that his answer is best and is good for us. Have confidence, church. Have confidence, believer. To approach the throne of grace. And plus life as a church, I, I implore you to pray with one another. Let's be a praying church. Well, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for time that we could spend in your word, the time that we could spend once again in the words of our Savior, in his instruction, in his teachings of how we ought to approach your throne. And I pray that we would be more persistent, O oh God, in our prayers, that we would not easily give up when we don't get what we want or when we find it difficult to pray or we want to move on to the next thing. I pray, God, that we would be more dependent on you as our heavenly father. Like children, oh God, who fully needs and fully, is fully reliant on our parent, oh God. I pray that we could be like that, oh God, in our prayers. I pray, oh God, that we would pray together more. And so at this time, God, I just want to Lift up the prayer needs of our church. The requests of our members, oh God. Of this local body. At this time, I'm, I'm going to ask everyone, wherever you're sitting, and if you're hearing my voice, to just, in your, in your heart, in your mind, pray to God for whatever burden has been on your heart. Whatever issue that has been plaguing your mind, keeping you up at night, whatever sin that you need to confess, whatever relationship you need to repair, whatever provision you are seeking God for. Lift it to God in prayer.
Father God, you know the hearts that are crying out to you. The burdens of your people. The hopes and dreams that maybe have not yet been met or seen or realized. The battles with sin and temptation that has discouraged the brother or the sister. pleads for victory, O oh God, of breakthrough in areas of their life. The prayers for unbelieving loved ones and friends. For them to come to faith. For the relationships that desire to be mended and healed. Lord, you hear them all, you know them all, and you care about them all. And we praise you that we can come to you as, as your children and know that you incline your ear to us. And that, God, you are moving even now, O oh Lord, to answer our prayers. Maybe not in the way that we want them answered or we expect. God, you are faithful to answer the prayers of your saints. And so, God, we trust in you again. We hope in you again. We rely on you again. And as a people, as a, a people who belong to you, Lord, I pray that we would be a praying church. That unbelievers would look in and see the difference because of our prayers. Unbelievers would look in and give praise to you and would even seek the prayers from us, oh God. Lord, I pray that we would be a church known for our prayers, oh God. And that we would be ready and eager to pray for one another, oh Lord. Let us follow in the example of our Savior as we pray these things as a church. In Jesus' name, I want to say amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.